The first reading is taken from 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. This can be found on page 277 of the Church Bibles. 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. And they served Beersheba at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. The second reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. That's page 1087 of the Church Bibles. John's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 to 16. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priest and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me... I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die, because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, 
Don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, You you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which is in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Thank you, Lydia, for reading that. Let me pray as we come to look at these uh, words. Oh, holy God, you are, as you make yourself known in the Bible, a speaking God. And it's a precious thing uh, that we can hear from our Creator, but we are slow to listen. So please would you help us now by your Spirit uh, so that we would be drawn to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, if you, I guess, if you're heading to 18 or maybe just turned 18, you'll have um, joined the rest of us in being able to vote uh, or soon be about to vote. So you might be taking more interest in politics at the moment. Maybe you've been watching some of the debates, seeing what you, you think of them, noticing a bit more now the way politicians operate, the underdog trying to outmaneuver the front runner, the sound bites that are designed to provoke reaction. Uh, the other week, Jeremy Hunt with his little line on that debate, where's Boris? Uh, just two words, but you know what it's designed to do, just to undermine someone who's going to be his, his opponent. And most of us uh, won't get to vote on a new prime minister, but all the political debates, they kind of invite us to come and give our verdict, don't they? Uh, what's your verdict? Uh, you've maybe been expressing your opinions during the week, and if you're drawn to that kind of stuff, well, then you'll get this passage that we've got in front of us. You begin for a moment to understand or be interested in the way politicians kind of operate. You get what's going on here because Jesus is on trial, but surrounding him there's skilled political operators. Pilate, the Roman governor, uh, the Jewish authorities. It actually starts, if you've got the Bible open in front of you, it starts back in chapter 18, this trial scene, in verse 28, When we were told these words, uh, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, he is the high priest, uh, to the palace of the Roman governor, that's Pilate, and they're wanting a swift death sentence, that's what they're after. They're just bringing him now, they they want Pilate to kind of rubber stamp this, so they can get him killed. Uh, The political maneuverings begin, and you can kind of feel the to and fro in it. So in chapter 19, in verse 5, if you've got that in front of you, when 
Pilate has had Jesus flogged, he brings him out and he says, here is the man. And as he's doing that, he's kind of mocking them. This is a political move. He's he's kind of mocking them. He's saying to these Jewish leaders, is this the guy you're frightened of? Look at him. He's a pathetic figure. Here is the man. And then um, when the Jewish leaders down in chapter 19, verse 12, are saying uh, to Pilate, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. You know what they're trying to do at that point. Read this and you'll see the politics in it. Uh, you'll see the politics. Um, they're trying to force his hand. Uh, he's claiming to be a king. So do you not mind, as a Roman governor, that someone else is setting themselves up as a king. They're trying to force Pilate's hand as much as anyone saying in current debates, will you here commit to leaving on October the 31st? It's fraught with difficulty, isn't it? Uh, people are politically trying to manipulate each other. Now, read this trial scene, and you'll see the politics, you'll see the trial, but, but most of all, if you begin to dig down into it, you'll see the man in the middle of it, because it's Jesus on trial, and it's We'll kind of see what the world says and what Jesus himself says. What the world says, that's who Pilate and the Jewish authorities kind of stand for. And there's two big accusations that are brought against Jesus. The first one was back in verse 33 of chapter 18. And it was this, are you the king of the Jews? It's what's been said to Pilate and he brings the question to him. In Jewish thinking... That's to be the Messiah, God's appointed king. But you get the politics here. If he's a king, surely he's a threat to Rome. Get rid of him. And then as Lydia read later on in verse 7 of chapter 19, there's this other accusation that's brought. He claimed to be the son of God. And all the way through John's gospel, that that phrase, if we've been reading it through carefully, when you hear that phrase, the son of God, it's a claim to be divine. Jesus is claiming This man who walked around in Palestine 2,000 years ago, he's claiming to be God on earth. That's what that's about. The eternal son, one with the father and the spirit. So the accusation is, as you, you put them together over the trial, that Jesus claims to be some kind of divine king and he's brought to Pilate for his verdict and execution. But Pilate doesn't think much of these Jewish leaders. He knows they don't care about Rome. And they hate Jesus for other reasons, and he doesn't want to be manipulated. And so he stalls them, and he questions Jesus. And three times he gives his verdict, this secular judge. He gives his verdict. It comes in chapter 18 and verse 38, chapter 19 and verse 4. And if you've got it in front of you, it's there at the end of chapter 19, verse 6. This is what the judge says. I find no basis for a charge against him. The judge has said, he's not guilty. Ah, He might be claiming some things along the way, but there's no threat to Rome. He's not guilty. That's what the judge says. But the political maneuverings begin, and Pilate, not wanting to be positioned as a weak leader, he caves in morally. And he sentences a man he knows is not guilty to the most excruciating death, really to let himself off the hook. At some sad moments. Some sad moments seem to be made worse, don't they, because of an accident of timing. You, you might understand that kind of thing. Something sad's happened, but also, 
the timing of it, it makes it worse. I remember years ago now, a guy asking me if I'd remembered Father's Day and asking me what I'd got for my dad. Did you get your dad anything for Father's Day? What he didn't know was that my dad had died just a few weeks before. Everybody in the room apart from him knew that. Um, and I, I made some comment about, no, I, I've, not, I've not got him anything, wanting to move the conversation on, but he wouldn't let it go. Kept banging on, what kind of a son are you? <laughs> what kind of son forgets Father's Day? He didn't know. I mean, I wouldn't cross with him. He, j- he just didn't know. But you can understand the situation. The sadness of losing my dad felt worse as it was con- contrasted with a day celebrating dads. The accident of the timing makes the thing feel worse. And some of you will know that kind of sadness and unfortunate timing that just, just makes something worse for you. And there's a, there's a hint of that. Uh, there's some of that in this passage. John, John, I think, just very subtly draws our attention to it. In verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 28, right at the end, we get a kind of timing thing. And it's there in chapter 19, verse 14, actually, as well. Uh, Almost as bookends for the whole trial, he says the timing, it was Passover. Uh, You probably know, and any Jewish person would know this, that's the great celebration. God's people were, were slaves in Egypt. And God was going to come in judgment, but the Passover lamb was killed. The blood put above their doorposts, and the people were spared and they're set free, and against all the odds, people who looked condemned ended up, ended up being set free. And it became a, a cause of national celebration. Uh, down through the generations, they remembered every year that those who looked condemned and enslaved, against all the odds, were set free. Uh, and yet, during this time of celebration, it's the opposite with Jesus. Jesus. Someone who we've just been told should be set free, against all the odds, finds himself condemned. And you get the point of what's being said. It's something like this. This so-called divine king will just die like a Passover lamb. That's what Pilate thinks. It's what the Jewish leaders think. Sure, it's an injustice, but it's no more than a footnote in history. That's what the world says. A so-called divine king will just die like a, a Passover lamb. You could read through this trial scene and think that's what's going on. But here's what Jesus says. And you might think that's an odd thing because what has the man in the dock got to say? But if you want to understand this trial, you really need to hear these words. And if you're, if you're here this morning and you, you're not a Christian yet, maybe you're, you're intrigued slightly by it. You can't get your head around it. Well, well listen into what Jesus says as he describes his own trial as he begins to explain what's going on here, uh, those two accusations that are brought to him, are you the king of the Jews? You see those accusations that pop them up here. Are you the king of the Jews? Back in chapter 18 and verse 36, he'll explain the nuance of that, but he does say, uh, yes, I have got a kingdom. He is saying, I am the king. He's the Messiah. And to that second claim in in chapter 19, verse 7, are you the son of God? Do you have some kind of divine power? Come on, Jesus, put it on the line. Are you really claiming to have that kind of authority? Are you saying you're God? 
And the answer is more hinted at. In verse 10, when, when Pilate says, don't you realize I have power either to free you or, or to crucify you? Jesus' response is not to plead for freedom. Please let me off. Let me go. Um, there's no kind of answers that way. No, it's verse 11. He says to Pilate, he says to the judge, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Now sit up for a moment. Just sit up and, and think about what's going on there. The accused in the dock speaking to the judge. And this is what he says to them. The man in the dock says to the man with all the power, Pilate, you've got responsibilities. And you will be held accountable for them. But don't imagine what's going on here. And even you being here is all down to you. No, there's another power at work above you, and that's God. It's a staggering thing to say, isn't it? Can you imagine any courtroom scene where the man in the dock with a death sentence hanging over him would speak in that kind of way, with that level of confidence to the judge? And you realize it's one of the truths that the Bible keeps pressing home. That while people... Pilate, the Roman governor, the Jewish leaders, you and me, while we act in responsible ways, that's right, isn't it? We, we know we do that. You and I choose to do certain things. We choose to do things, and sometimes we choose right things, sometimes we choose wrong things. We're responsible people. Things aren't just done to us. We act in responsible ways. But while we're doing all those things, and even Pilate and the Jewish leaders, Jesus is saying that God's not just responding is if we're the ones in charge. It's not as if he's just dancing to our drumbeat, that he's just responding to the things we do. No, he's saying, no, he's sovereignly at work, carrying out his own plans. Somehow, while we're responsible, he is still acting sovereignly so that what people do won't ever thwart him. In fact, even as people willfully do things that God says is wrong, in the end, it will still achieve those wrong things, God's good plans. Uh, the Bible puts these two things before us, that you and I are responsible, people are responsible, but God is totally sovereign at work. And you think, I don't quite understand how those things go together, and the Bible would say, that's probably right. You don't. But that's the way it is. God is not just passive responding to us. He's sovereign working out his plans. And what is interesting here is Jesus claiming, as he's done throughout John's gospel, that while he stands and submits to Pilate, as Pilate makes his choices, as other people make their choices, and he'll speak to Pilate and say, you're guilty of things and other people are guilty. And while he stands there, he can still speak with authority about this higher power and say that he's involved in those decisions being made. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He's claiming to be the divine king. And if you think, well, what about that awful death at Passover? Surely he's just a victim there. If you have a Bible open, just come back to chapter 18 and verse 32. John puts this little comment in. Speaking about the trial before Pilate, he says... This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. The way he would die. The when he would die. 
that he would die on a cross, that he would die at the time of the Passover with all that imagery in everyone's mind, the Passover lamb dying. Jesus decided that. He spoke about that. And it's now that you realize, if you're reading this carefully, that while the world says, look, we'll reject this so-called divine king who died just like a Passover lamb. And what Jesus is saying is, I am the rejected divine king who's come to die as a Passover lamb. I know some of you well, others I don't know. I don't know what you make about Jesus, the claims he makes in the Bible, but this is what he's saying. The person you meet in Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, is the one who's saying to us, he's God on earth. The God who's rejected by people, and he's come to be a Passover lamb. And that's a bit different, isn't it? The treatment of Jesus by the world is the way God's always treated. He's the divine king. He made everything. Made you and me. Made the world around us, but people reject him. Some feel more hostile, like the Jewish leaders. Some, like Pilate, can barely bring themselves to engage with what he says. You know that kind of feeling. It happens in families sometimes, doesn't it? Somebody becomes a Christian or a couple of people become a Christian in the family and the rest of the family don't want to hear about it. Can we talk about this? I don't want to hear. I won't even engage with it. Can we read a little bit of the Bible? No, I don't want to read it. I'll just push God out. But whatever way it happens, it amounts to the same thing. Yeah, what's this rejected divine king done? I mean, what would you do? You think for a moment, don't you, if someone were to reject you that kind of way, who just wants to ignore you and push you out, and more than that, when you've not done anything wrong, starts to say you're guilty of things and treats you on that basis, how would you feel about them? What would you do to people who mistreat you this way? And what would God do? Well, that's what, this passage tells us about this says he's come to deliberately give his life as a Passover lamb for the people who reject him he's come to take the judgment so that against all the odds people who should be condemned could actually be set free it's funny in this passage isn't it it's very clearly Jesus is on trial he's standing before a judge and people are bringing accusations against him and it's obvious none of them really care about the truth but but really what this trial tells us is, and what Jesus is saying through it, is that it's Pilate and even you and me who are on trial before him. And he's bringing accusations against us. Jesus says to the world, he says to Pilate, he says to you sitting here this morning and to me, I am the divine king that you reject, but I've come to be your Passover lamb. It's a weird thing to say, isn't it? And he means, I'm the one who'll take the judgment for the way you've ignored and rejected God. And back in chapter 18 and verse 37, if it's there before you, towards the end, Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You listen to Jesus? Do you give him a fair hearing? Would you give the one who says he's God on earth and says he's come to rescue you, to treat you in that kind of way, would you give him even half an hour to engage with his words? Would you listen to him? That's kind of what the world says, isn't it? And there's, 
at what Jesus says. And so the last thing, really, as we, we draw things to a close, is what's your verdict? There's different ways you could ask that. We could be asking, what's your verdict on the politicians in this story? What do you think about the the things they've done? And there's mileage in that. I guess most of us are passing our verdict pretty much daily on uh, our political leaders. It's just here in this passage, Jesus isn't really asking that kind of question. No, Uh, what he's saying is, no, do you really know your verdict? The verdict that's been passed on you. Do you know what your verdict is? And the Bible always seems much less concerned to hear what you think of God and much more concerned to explain what God thinks of you. And Jesus Christ has passed a verdict on you and me. And it's guilty because you've ignored and rejected him. You've taken his good gifts in the world that he's made and not wanted anything to do with him. But he says, if you will accept that verdict, you'll also find that he speaks to you about his death that he's provided a way for your guilt to be dealt with. And so this is saying to us that the God you meet in the Bible, the God you meet in Jesus Christ, is the king who confronts you as your judge and also your savior who takes your place in the dock. That he is the one who rightly accuses you over everything you've done against him and then also graciously defends you So in the end, there's nothing left against you. It says he's the one whose justice must always bring you into the courtroom. And the one whose love in the death of his son has found a way to lead you out, acquitted, forgiven. Are you listening to Jesus? Do you have that verdict on your life that admits who you really are before God? And then has discovered what God has done for you in his son. That's the trial scene. What would it mean for us? What would it mean for us if we have that verdict on our lives? What would it mean if you're someone who's trusting or wanting to trust this Jesus? What would it mean for you if you're a Christian? Here's a couple of things. I think it means for us that Christian living always has a discomforting comfort. Let me try and explain what I mean by that. Look, if you, if you follow Jesus, there will be a sense in which he'll always be confronting us with sin and then comforting us with his good news. See, if we're people who, who turn from God, if he brings us back to himself, God will have to be confronting us with our wrong ways of living, pointing out where we're wrong, and that will be discomforting. It's not nice, is it, to have things pointed out like that? It will be an uncomfortable experience. Those, those of you in your teens, maybe you feel like you're just beginning on the journey of living for Jesus. Have you found this? God will discomfort you. He'll challenge you about sin. Have you felt that discomfort? If you have, it's probably one of the encouraging evidences that you are listening to him that he's speaking to you and you're hearing him. And it'll be true for all of us. If we live for him, it will bring us to this point where it's uncomfortable for us. It can feel like you've been brought into the courtroom, but whenever he does that, it's not to leave you there. 
No, if you listen to him, he will always show you that he's also stood in the courtroom for you. Where although he was not guilty, he took the sentence that should have been yours. And so as he discomforts you about your sin, he will also comfort you with his gospel. Christian living always brings discomforting comfort. And here's the final thing, and it's, it's this, that Christian confidence is always countercultural. Our culture tends to find confidence in what we're good at. You know the kind of things that you're, you're pretty, you're athletic, you're, you're intellectual, you're, you're well-behaved. And often it's a confidence that's, that can lead to arrogance because it's built on self-achievement, but it's also a fragile confidence. Uh, this past week, a friend of mine from university um, sent me a photograph of the two of us when we were at uni. And I saw myself 20, 28 years ago. I was slim. I had a full head of hair. I was smiling. I could have wept. I could have wept when I saw it. I thought, what's happened to me? And then you might be laughing thinking, that's incredible. Why would I be sad? As if I've lost a lot. <laughs> I was hardly a stunner. But I feel that sadness inside, isn't it? And your confidence is fragile. It's tied up, even for middle-aged, middle-aged, balding men. My confidence can be tied up, even with how I look. It's fragile, isn't it? Confidence based on those kind of things. Because if I stop being pretty, as I have done, or someone smarter, or I don't behave well, then I've lost my reason for confidence. So you've got to defend it, haven't you? You've got to keep putting on the creams. You've got to keep up all the studying and make sure it's a first. You've got to make sure your family function well. You've never got to admit you've done something really wrong because if someone finds out about that, then you've lost all your reasons for confidence. So you've got to protect it in any way. Deny if you've done anything wrong. Never admit it. But Christian confidence, if you get this, Christian confidence is, is completely different because it's not built on anything you or I do because this says you have been judged already and judged a failure. That is the verdict on your life at the most fundamental level before God. But he saved you. He says, if you're trusting Jesus, he has saved you. And it's not because you're pretty or got the smarts or athletic or managed to behave well. He saved you because he's loved you. And that means that it's always secure because it doesn't rely on you. So the good news about Jesus, if you really get this, the good news about Jesus is the one thing that can make you always confident but never arrogant so that you can enjoy success and you can even enjoy other people doing better than you, getting more out of life than you without being either arrogant by your success or depressed that they seem to be getting ahead. And you can own up to your failures and still have confidence in God's saving love. And it's why as Christians, it's why as Christians we should be quick to admit our failures and humble about our good achievements and our confidence isn't tied to either of those things. It's located somewhere else in the Lord Jesus. There's no one else who can give that kind of thing to you. There's no one else who can give you that confidence. See, how do you get it? 
How do you get that for life? How do you, how do you and I grow in it? Well, Jesus says at his trial, it's all through him. It's only through him. Listening to what he says. Accepting his verdict on our lives. And receiving and rejoicing in the forgiveness that he gives. That he went into the courtroom for us so we could leave confident and assured in God's love. We're going to stop there. And often on Sundays, in our Sunday services, we have our, what we call our confession. Earlier on in the service, when we're saying to God, sorry about the things we've done wrong, uh, we've left it to this point in the service. And, and for a particular reason, just as we, we think about this verdict on our lives, in, in a moment, the words of the confession are going to come up on the screen, and we're going to pray it together. It's the point of the service where, as a church family, we say to God, we're people who do the wrong thing. And then after that, if you've been coming along for any time, you'll, you'll know this. The thing that happens after we've confessed our sin is the person leading the service speaks some words from the Bible that are assurance of forgiveness. It's what we're talking about the gospel. As we confess our sin, God comes in. As he discomforts us with our sin, he comes in with a word of assurance to comfort us uh, with the gospel. Now we want to have these things in our minds as we do that. And then after we've done that, and I've prayed very briefly for us, Matt has chosen uh, two songs that we're going to finish our service with. And they're, they're really two songs that speak of this assurance we can have if we know Jesus. And I guess two things to have in mind. Maybe, maybe you're already a Christian. Maybe there's something in life where you know you've been saying no to God and you want to as we confess our sin. Please change me. Help me to accept that verdict. Please forgive me. And help me to move on from there. And maybe it's a different thing for you. Maybe you've been coming along to Christchurch for a while now. You've been hearing the Christian message. And maybe you come this morning thinking, do you know what, I, I do believe it. I found it uncomfortable, but I think it's true and I'd like to be a Christian. Well, maybe as we pray this prayer, why don't you pray this confession as a way of saying to God, I want to know this forgiveness through Jesus. I'd like to be a Christian. Let's have a moment, uh, just briefly of quiet. The music group are going to come back up to the front now. You have a moment of quiet for your own thoughts. And then we'll pray together the confession that's on the screen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we have sinned against you. We have done evil in your sight. We are sorry and repent. Have mercy on us according to your love. Wash away our wrongdoing and cleanse us from our sin. Renew a right spirit within us and restore us to the joy of your salvation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And brothers and sisters, hear these.